We are in an area where teacher and school leader autonomy is under a lot of pressure. It's becoming common practice, especially at the elementary level, for teachers to be handed a tightly structured curriculum and scripted teaching package and told, do this. We even hear the term teacher-proof being used to refer to the idea that anyone, even a struggling teacher, can do this program. On the other end, we have mandatory evaluation processes that, while well-intentioned, concentrate time and attention on a summative process that actually detracts from the formative work that helps teachers to grow their craft. Both of these situations put processes and purpose before people. So today, Mike Anderson and I are going to help you think about how to be more strategic and to leverage these two phenomena to put people first and to help grow a better school. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Frederick Buskey. We are all on a leadership journey. Every day, we have a chance to grow. Every day, we have a chance to help others grow. My goal and the goal of this podcast is to help you grow into being a strategic leader, a leader who puts people before purpose, who solves problems instead of treating symptoms, and who understands the difference between progress and action. Through this podcast, my daily email and virtual programs, I'm working to build a network of inspired and inspiring school leaders. Let's get started on today's adventure and this unique opportunity to learn to live and lead better. Mike Anderson has been an educator for more than 25 years. A public school teacher for 15 years, he also taught preschool, coached swim teams, and taught university graduate level classes. He now works as a consultant providing professional learning for teachers throughout the U.S. and beyond. In 2004, Mike was awarded a National Milken Educator Award, and in 2005, he was a finalist for the New Hampshire Teacher of the Year. In 2020, he was awarded the Outstanding Educational Leader by NHASCD for his work as a consultant. A best-selling author, Mike has written nine books about great teaching and learning, and his latest book is Tackling the Motivation Crisis, How to Activate Student Learning Without Behavior Charts, Pizza Parties, or Other Hard-to-Quit Incentive Systems. When not working, Mike can be found hanging out with his family, tending his perennial gardens, and searching for new running routes around his home in Durham, New Hampshire. Hello, Mike. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Frederick. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for having me. We're glad you're here, and we always like to start with celebrations. So what are you celebrating today? Oh, this is totally goofy. Our little hound dog, Stanley, is three years old today. <laughs> so he's been on a birthday walk. He got some shake cheese in his breakfast this morning. Uh, we're pampering him a little bit, and uh, I, that's a little bit goofy, but that's what we're celebrating in our house this morning. That was our pandemic puppy who just turned three. Wow. I just think it's a great way to model. We have to celebrate everything we can because we don't celebrate enough. So kudos to you for finding a reason to make it a special day. Yeah, right on. So Mike, is there a story that will help listeners understand why you are doing what you do? 
Yeah. And by that, do you mean the education consulting work? Do you mean the coaching that I do with teachers? Do you mean the presenting and consulting and all that stuff? Whatever story there is that's like driving you that you keep going back to and find, you know, a source of inspiration from. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I never really planned on doing the work that I'm doing now. It wasn't that 20 years ago I had this grand vision about where I was going to be. People often ask me that question, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I never really know how to answer that because I've always taken the approach that I love what I'm doing in the moment and I'm always keeping my eyes and ears open for new possibilities. So I was a classroom teacher for a long time and, and happily a classroom teacher. And for a long time thought I would do that for my entire career. I knew I didn't want to go into administration. That just wasn't something that appealed to me. Um, but started doing some part-time consulting work for a nonprofit organization and found out that I really enjoyed working with adults almost as much as I like working with kids. So started doing some part-time work with them and that eventually developed into a full-time opportunity, which I decided to take. I'd been in the classroom 15 years and was just ready for a new challenge. And I did that for a while. And after six and a half years with that organization, the organization was making some changes that I just couldn't quite go along with and decided that I was ready to try striking out on my own. It was never really the plan, but um, I started doing some independent consulting and haven't looked back and absolutely uh, love it. And I think one of the things that I especially love about it is that there's there are always opportunities to grow and learn. So mm. the, the work that I'm doing now as an education consultant is very different than the work I was doing five or six or seven years ago, because I guess I, I just keep finding new ways to work with teachers and work with kids and, and support great learning. And so it's, it's an absolute blast. Yeah. So you, I mean, you do a lot, we're going to talk a lot today about motivation. Was there, what was the impetus for you diving into motivation? Oh gosh, this has always been something I've been fascinated with as a classroom teacher. I felt like one of my real strengths was always looking at the work that my students were doing through their eyes. Mm. So when I was planning a lesson or planning a unit or designing some sort of learning, I was always thinking not just about my students in general, but especially my most challenging students. You know, how's Haley going to feel about this? But <laughs> what's Alex going to think about this? And, and if in my head I thought, oh, they're going to hate this, then I had to do something to make it more palatable and interesting to my learners who really struggled with engagement. So it's something I've always been interested in. So, you know, we made movies as a class. We had a Revolutionary War sleepover one year where we had a sleepover in the class, you know, in sleeping bags on the floor in fifth grade. And everything we did was centered around the American Revolution. And my students were the ones who designed and organized the whole thing because that was what they wanted to do. And we've made quilts in mathematics. And I would, you know, take my kids on field trips out into the woods where we would go and collect scummy water out of vernal pools and let it sit in an aquarium and see what came out in science. I, I've just always been interested in, in finding work that kids will find exciting and interesting and motivational. And, and as I work in schools, I, I think this is something that we as a profession are really struggling with right now. I often hear teachers say that they're really worried about kids' motivation and they think kids aren't as motivated as they used to be. I, I actually don't think that's true because when I see kids getting to do really awesome, hands-on, interesting, collaborative, appropriately challenging work, they're on fire. 
they're not super motivated to work out of a math textbook. That I think they're less willing and able to be compliant than they were five or 10 years ago. Um, and so now I love the challenge of helping teachers reimagine the work that they're doing, even if they're in a like a scripted program, even if they've been handed a, a curriculum guide, you know, developed by somebody who's never met their kids and this is what they're supposed to implement. I think it's such a fun challenge to find ways of of taking what's there and and making it awesome from kids' perspective. So I just I just find a lot of energy in that work. It's it's really interesting what you're saying, what you're hearing from people, because I, I'm hearing and seeing some of the thing, same things. I, I think two things have happened when we talk about students. I don't like to say motivated because I think disengaged might be, right? Um, yes. So I think, yes. two, yeah. And so when, when the pandemic happened, everybody jumped to online. And I think a lot of teachers, because they weren't sure what to do, because they didn't have the training that was necessary. So this isn't this isn't a criticism of teachers. Like people did heroic work and gave great effort and were doing the absolute best they can. But in a lot of cases, I think teachers didn't know how, if they're supposed to be with me for five hours a day or for 45 minutes a day, right? Then I have to give them 45 minutes of work. So then you're trying to just kind of make stuff up and... And I think the lesson that students took away from that is the work is irrelevant, that it's just, it's just a way to kind of, it's just like filler in a meal. It's like the, the potatoes, no offense to people who love potatoes, but it's just the bread or whatever. It's not really the spice. It's not the flavor. So the first lesson that students have learned is that all that work really isn't very meaningful or important. And then the second thing I know in a lot of classrooms I'm seeing, teachers are still more reliant on the computers, on the devices than they were before, which potentially is a cool thing, but that there's more of that rote stock kind of stuff going on. And so, so there's more of what's less important going on in schools. And, and so I think that's where we're going to dig, you know, back in episode 93, you and I dove into motivation. I encourage listeners to go back because it was so much fun, which is why you're back here today. <laughs> right. So I re-listened to that episode before we recorded. And, and I want to begin with something you said previously. You introduced six factors of motivation, autonomy, competence, belonging, purpose, you know, the why, curiosity, and then this one, fun. And regarding fun, you said, human beings are like otters. We are programmed to seek out enjoyment and fun. So can you share something that you've been trying to get better at or learn that has been a struggle for you, but has also been fun? So that's such an interesting question, because I think there are two different ways we might think about that term fun. Mm. And a colleague of mine, Robin Jackson, who wrote the book, Never Work Harder Than Your Students. Mm -hmm. uh, she's an amazing dynamic educator. We had a really kind of heated conversation over dinner one night at an ASCD conference where I was, I was working on the book on motivation. And I told her about the categories. And she told me that fun should not be one of the six motivators. She said, fun is not a thing on its own. It's what you experience when the other ones are firing. 
when you have autonomy, when you have purpose, when you are, are doing meaningful, awesome, cool, interesting work, it feels fun. And that's where the energy comes from. And I think that in part, she's right. I think that that is like, it can be really fun to solve a Sudoku puzzle where the challenge is appropriate. Uh, you know, when you're, you get the sense of accomplishment, it feels gamey. And so it's fun. Um, but it's not fun like playing a game fun. You know, a Sudoku puzzle is a, you know, it's an interesting challenge, but I think it feels fun because the the challenge itself is part of what's enjoyable. But then I do think that there is other, there is this sort of gamey quality of fun. Like, for example, we could we could say to fourth graders who are practicing multiplication, you can practice in one of two ways. You can either make up your own problems to solve just out of your head, or you can flip playing cards or roll dice. And whatever numbers come up on the cards of the dice, you use those numbers to construct your multiplication problems. There's something about rolling dice and flipping cards that's enjoyable. I think that's a more sort of maybe low level fun, <laughs> the sort mm -hmm. of like otters sliding down a bank kind of fun. But, but I think that that one is its own thing. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a result of the other motivators firing. So I think that when we can find a task that's inherently, it feels like it, it feels like drudgery. You know, practicing multiplication fact fluency or practicing long multiplication, if the problems are appropriately challenging, it can feel good to solve them because you get the sense of accomplishment. It feeds your need for competence. Um, if you get to pick the problems you're working on, there could be a, some autonomy, but it's a little, it's a little bit of a slog. But if we can add dice or dominoes or cards or spinners and make it feel a little bit more gamey, uh, it makes it gives you more energy and allows you to practice that skill that might be a little bit rote, might be a little bit boring with some more enthusiasm. Mm, okay. I'm going to come at this from a very different way based on a recent experience, which is probably why I locked onto this, this phrase. And I love human beings are like otters. Like the imagery to that is just awesome. Hopefully people have seen otters. Um, so my son Colin got a puppy back in December and years ago, we had taken down the fence, the fence is that kind of boxed in our backyard. And we had a big side yard and we live on an acre and a half. So it was all wide open. So puppy came, I thought, okay, we're going to get a fence up here or we're going to be doing a lot of chasing. Mm -hmm. the, the problem, Mike, is I'm a perfectionist and I had never built a fence before. So we're talking digging post holes. I actually scalloped the tops so that they were... They were a mirror of the way our deck posts had been put in. And I had a long run, about 25, 26 feet of run where I needed to put in posts every six or eight feet and then make sure that they were all lined up, that they all reached the same height. So this was way beyond my skill and, and very challenging. At times I was frustrated, but I'm just kind of looking through these factors of motivation. Um, part of purpose was the big motivator, right? Like this had, this had to get done. Um, but I, I am a curious person and I do like growing and developing skills. So on the one hand, it was, there were times it was incredibly frustrating. And I told my wife at the end, like, Pam, this was a huge success because I did not throw my hammer or the nails one time. <laughs> Congratulations. There were some other problems, but I didn't throw anything. That's a win for me. But once stuff started to go and started to get lined up, 
and we were, I could feel like, okay, I'm starting to get the hang of this. It became fun. And that fun was a big factor in the motivation. And I know for me, sometimes that payoff of the struggle, like this is something I want to be able to do and want to be, I'm outside, it's sunny, I'm working with my hands. I mean, that's awesome, but it was a struggle. And so I think all those pieces of motivation come together. I do think the fun is something when we, as we get to the point of maybe mastery or learning or wherever it is we're headed, I think that experience of, of like, okay, I got this, this, this is, this is becoming okay. Um, I so, think that's important. Yeah. So to me, that sounds like what Robin was talking about which is that as you became successful and you started to feel a sense of accomplishment, that fed your need for competence. You were like, oh, I'm getting this. I feel good about myself because now this is happening. I think that that glow, that sense of fun was probably an offshoot of the success you were having with the difficult task. Okay. Um, I would say, you know, being outside and working with your hands, if those are some things you find inherently enjoyable, that might've made the work a little bit more fun along the way. Maybe if you'd listen to music as you'd worked, that's like when I go on a long run, just earlier today, I went on an 11 mile run. I had music on because that helps pass the time. It makes things a little bit more fun and enjoyable. I've got different playlists I use for different kinds of runs. Uh, that's that's a way that I keep my interest up as I'm doing something long and hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, and I, I think that as educators, sometimes we, we almost place too much value in fun in the classroom. Like, it's often something kids will say is the gold standard. You know, oh, so-and-so, he's so funny. I love that teacher because he's fun or she's fun. Um, I think that learning can be enjoyable without being fun in the gamey sense. Mm. But I think that what you're talking about is the sense of accomplishment. Like, you were feeling good about yourself because of the success you had with that hard thing. And that's gold. That's what we want kids to feel with academic work. Like I've been working on this research paper and I felt so underwater and I felt it was a real slog and a struggle, but now it's coming together and I feel like I've got a really cohesive piece and I'm making my points with clarity. Like that feels really good. So um, maybe I'm thinking of joy with an exclamation point to me yeah. means fun. Is yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's the, here's the premise today. Here's where we're going. That I think getting better at our craft I said, getting better at our craft is fun. And, and maybe we can replace that with motivating, right? When we know we're getting better at our craft. That is awesome. That's awesome. And I remember light bulb moments in my career where I took a big step to getting better. And it was like, wow, that that, that is deeply satisfying. So the premise is that getting better at our craft is fun, motivating, satisfying, however we want to divine that. And that getting better at our craft when we choose how and where we need to get better, that gives us that autonomy that allows us to build on the competence we already have. It facilitates our purpose. It creates space for that curiosity. And then when growth is part of the culture of our school and administrators are modeling continual growth, and we can make that improvement of craft something that's communal. And so that then enhances that sense of belonging. So that's really the way I want to frame this today. 
And the important point there is that when we choose how we need to grow, when we choose the method of that growth, we're going to talk about teachers autonomy, and then we're going to talk about administrators autonomy, but yeah, let's, let's just go before I give away the, <laughs> the, the, the big, the big piece here. So, um, Today, I wish listeners, by the way, could have seen me nodding vigorously at everything you were just saying and smiling like, yes, yes, yes. Like the motivation that we're trying to create for our students is the exact same motivation that we as adults need to foster in ourselves as well. And as teachers, we need to be responsible for meeting our own needs for belonging, competence, purpose, autonomy, all those. And as school leaders who are working with teachers, we need to work at fostering those elements in the work that that the people we're supporting and serving are doing. So yes, yes, yes. I can't wait to talk about this some more. <laughs> Good. So let's dive in. And we're going to do two situations, one in which external mandates or both of them external mandates really undermine kind of multiple aspects of motivation. So one of those is with teachers who are handed a package curriculum and say, teach this. And then the other one is for assistant principals and principals who are handed a packaged evaluation program and told to go do this. So I think there, there are parallels that we will pull from that. So let's dive in with the teachers. That's really your area of expertise. Teachers handed a package curriculum, which seems to go against a lot of those motivating forces. How, how can teachers find the elements that are motivational to them in that? And then how can administrators support them in that quest? So this is something I am working with in a bunch of different schools and districts right now. Um, there are so many of those programs and curricula out there for literacy instruction, for math instruction, um, especially, especially at the elementary level. I know that those exist at the middle and high school level too, but especially at the elementary level, teachers are often handed a program and said, here's what you're going to teach in math. And all the lessons are all written out for you. And all you have to do is follow the script. And sometimes those things are even billed as being teacher proof, which is so demeaning. I mean, think about what that means. It's so easy to follow that even a teacher can't mess it up. It's unbelievable. So, so just, so one thing that teachers should do is recognize why that feels so icky. Like what, what is it when you, when you're handed that, there might be a sense of relief. I remember when I was a classroom teacher, we adopted a math program and I had a little bit of a sense of relief because I'd been making everything up on my own to that point. And it was a lot of work and it was exhausting. And the idea that somebody had just handed me 120 lessons that were all written out and all the homework was there and all the practice sheets were there. Um, I, I had some optimism about that and was excited about the idea of not having to spend so much time planning. The problem was that by outsourcing the planning, by allowing myself to just follow along with that program, I was no longer doing deep thinking about what I was teaching and why and how. I was just following. And sometimes I didn't really fully understand the lessons before I taught them, so of course they fell flat. I had no autonomy, at least that was my perception, it turned out to be not entirely true. Um, but it was my perception that I was supposed to teach the program as is word for word. It often didn't work 
because in those, it's so funny when you look at those teacher manuals, they'll often have a script in there and it says teacher colon, and then it shows, shows what you're supposed to say. And then it says student colon, and it shows what the student response is going to be. And I don't know if I've ever been in a classroom where a student has actually responded what the textbook says they're supposed to. Like, we need to be handing those manuals to the kids, too, so they know what to say to follow along and play the game. <laughs> Sounds like the responsive reading in church, right? <laughs> yes, right. It's like it's it's like in the responsive reading in church, if only the preacher had the, the call part and nobody had the response part, and everyone was supposed to figure out what they were supposed to say on their own. Yeah, wouldn't work so well. Um, so anyway, I went in with a little optimism, but then I very quickly lost my energy and motivation for teaching math because I wasn't thinking about it deeply. I wasn't thinking about my students first. I mentioned earlier, I always tried to think about my students first and how are they going to feel about this and are they going to like this? I was no longer thinking that way. I was just thinking, how am I supposed to teach the lesson that's in front of me? Um, and, and for the first time in my career, students started to groan when math time rolled around and that had never happened before. And it was in part because I was quietly groaning on the inside too, because I had lost my joy of teaching math because it was no longer my teaching. I was just the pawn of this math textbook company. Now, here's the good news. I went and talked to the math consultant in our district. And I said to her, do I actually have to teach all of these lessons? Or if I've got a better idea for how to teach a lesson or a unit, as long as I'm still teaching the skills and content, is that okay? Like, can I mess with this? She actually said, that's our hope, is that teachers will use this as a starting point, as a jumping off point, And it's going to give us some consistency about the ways we're teaching multiplication or division. But if you've got a better idea for a lesson, or if you want to do a cool hands-on project, go for it. And that was when I got my mojo back. That was when I rediscovered my joy of teaching math because I took a whole geometry unit, restructured the entire unit, still taught all the skills, but our end goal was to create a class quilt where every student designed their own 12 inch by 12 inch quilt square using all the geometric principles that we were learning in the unit. And that was their final assessment. It was so cool. Um, and I think that that is, that's where we've got some potential um, this is where we've got an exciting opportunity as teachers to reclaim some of our autonomy. Now, if you've actually got a district administrator who's saying, you have to follow this program word for word, you may not deviate. Um, you know, you need to post on the outside of your door what lesson you're on and make sure you're putting down the time you're going to be teaching it. And we're going to come around with stopwatches and time you. I've heard of that sort of thing. I've never actually worked in a school that does that, but I've heard stories. Um, well, then start brushing up your resume yeah. and, and get out of there. Yeah. Um, what what My, teachers usually oh, go ahead, Frederick. Yeah. yeah I, well, I want to jump in because I, do, I don't want to lose something that I think just happened. So you said when, when you were just working that whole curriculum and taking it as it was, you lost sight of, you weren't putting your students first. And then when you got clarity that you didn't have to follow the, the whole mandate there, you went back to that idea of what do my students need? How do I make this work for my kids? And one of the things I'm continually pounding on these days is people before purpose. And it struck me as a great example of how we get in trouble because the purpose educating kids, which we then break down into these math standards that the purpose becomes the standards and what happens? We don't take care of the people. 
-hmm. right? The people become secondary to the purpose because it becomes distorted. And that's the problem with putting purpose first. When we put people first, that then drives us to excel at what we say our purpose is. So I wanted to point that out to, to people, how it's just a great example of people before purpose. And then the, the other thing that you said, and this goes for all levels of educators, for any mandate, get clarity about the degree of implementation that's expected on the mandate. Like that should be the first thing we all do is get clarity on what is expected. Because in many, many cases, what is expected is, oh, we want you to build on this. We want you to make it your own. So thank you for those two points right there. Right. And going back to that first one that you just mentioned, I think an important question to ask is, who is in service of whom? Are the children here in service of this math program or is the math program here in service of the children? Because if the math program is here in service of the children, then we should be able to make some changes to the math program to serve the children. <laughs> if, if what we're really doing is serving the, the program itself, then we're, then we're dead in the water. Yeah. Um, okay. At the risk of derailing this whole conversation, <clears throat> years ago, I was watching a documentary on Vietnam. And, and there was a reporter going around interviewing, um, troops and, and he was in, in the midst of battle and he's behind a wall. It's a, it's like a concrete wall about four feet and you can hear the, the gunfire and he's got his big mic and he's interviewing this Marine and the Marine shoves a clip in his M16 and he holds the rifle up with both arms, but he's, he can't, he's not looking over the concrete barrier because he doesn't want to get shot. So he's just lifting the rifle up and he unloads, he, he unloads the whole clip. He can't see anything because his head's under, you know, he's keeping safe. He's got his arms over his head. He unloads the whole clip, brings his rifle down, has a conversation. He's reloading while he's having the conversation with the, the interviewer. And he says, hang on a minute. <laughs> he gets up and he does it again. And, and so that's pray and spray right? And why do you pray and spray? You pray and spray because it is so difficult to put your head up, right? Because it might get taken off. And that's the environment that our teachers are working in right now. So that's where the pray part is. So why do you spray? You spray because you got to be doing something. Mm -hmm. And so I think the other point here is that a lot of times the mandates that come down are because we're spraying and maybe we haven't done the praying. We haven't looked at the data and really figured out what, you know, what's going on here. We haven't gone down and talked to our teachers, but we know we got to do something. And we see somebody at a conference and it looks good or the book looks great. So let's, or district next door is having great success with that. So let's do that. And so that's another piece of it, I think is understanding oh, why are we even doing this? And, and without, you know, you don't, you can't go up and say, yell at people and say, why are we doing this? But understanding what, what, what was the thinking behind adopting this particular practice and program? Because that then as an administrator, especially is going to help me figure out who's invested in this. Why are they invested in this? And then how can I use my, my leadership powers to facilitate helping my teachers handle this thing and make it something that's actually positive for us. I've got a couple of thoughts about what you just said. 
Um, one is that I think that sometimes districts purchase those curricula because it is, and I don't mean this in a, in a snarky way, but it's easier and even less expensive to spend a lot of money on a curriculum than it is to invest a lot of time and energy in improving teacher skill sets. That's a much more complicated endeavor. And if a company comes along and guarantees success, if you have fidelity to the program, which by the way, I think is the new F word in education is fidelity when it's used in that way. Um, it's hard not to jump at that. But then the problem is, is that you think that the program is the solution. But if we don't invest time and energy in helping educators use it well, we're, we're missing the boat. And then in thinking about this from the educator's perspective and the importance of getting clarity about why we're, why are we doing this and how much, what, to what degree of fidelity do we actually have to work here? I also think it's important to find the right people to ask that question of. Because if you ask a district level administrator, a curriculum coordinator who's overseeing 12 or 15 schools and they never actually get into the schools and that might not be the right person to ask. The right person to ask might be your building level coach or your principal or assistant principal who's really helping to drive teaching and learning. Um, I've asked that question of different people in different schools and received a variety of different answers. Mm -hmm. And in mm -hmm. one district that I'm thinking of, the district level literacy administrator really wants everybody using this program and wants everybody doing the same thing in the same way at the same time. And that's not the way the building level administrators want that work used. Yeah. And there's a tension there. And as a teacher, I think it's important to figure out who the most important person is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I would encourage listeners to, to, to understand that <clears throat> there are many kinds of districts. And if all you have ever worked in is a very hierarchical top down follow chain of command and do your marching orders, understand there are a lot of schools that are not like that. In fact, the majority of schools I've been in have large degrees of administrator and teacher autonomy. Agreed. And in some where there's that straight line, but just understand as, as you and I are having this conversation, I think there might be people in districts that say, hey, if I put a toe across the line, I'm gonna get with that toe cut off. That's not the way it is probably in most districts. And quite frankly, there is such a teacher shortage right now can you imagine a school firing a teacher for making the math curriculum better than it is already? Like, is that really going to happen? I, I think there's this fear we work out of sometimes. And I think sometimes when teachers don't ask the questions of the right people and they just assume we've been given this program, we're supposed to do it as is, it, that becomes a narrative in a school that's not always true. In fact, I was once working in a school, the principal and assistant principal had hired me for a day to come in and facilitate work across a school about how to use independent research across curricular areas with teachers. How do you let kids have really good choice about what they're learning and how they're learning about it and how they demonstrate their learning? And we're doing a full day workshop on this. And at one point in the day, I came over to a group of teachers who just seemed kind of stuck. They're stuck in their work and they were stuck emotionally. And I had a conversation with them and they leveled with me. They said, Mike, I, I just don't think that our administrators are going to let us do this. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you know that they hired me to, to facilitate? They're paying me to be here today. Like, 
I'm pretty sure they want you to do this. But there was a narrative in the school of teachers saying, oh, our administrators will never let us. And at the very same school, I talked with administrators who were saying, oh my gosh, we wish teachers would take some risks and try some new things. And so getting, getting communication flowing in a school and getting some of that out into the air to figure out what you can and can't do is important because there's often nuance there. It's not an all or nothing. So in one district where I'm going to be doing a lot of work next year, I went in and observed in a bunch of the elementary schools, oh my gosh, there's so much great stuff happening, but the teachers are saddled with a math program that's not serving the children very well. Seven and eight-year-olds are sitting through 30 straight minutes of direct instruction. And there's lots of question and answer style teaching, which is one of those things that in the book looks like it's going to be great. Who, who can tell us what a parallelogram is? And then in the teacher book, the child answers correctly. But in reality, five different kids all answer with half understandings. It muddies the water. Everybody's confused and the whole lesson falls apart. Yeah. Or none so of them I, answer. Right, right. So I said, to the, I said to the math coordinator, this is something I think we could work on next year. But I want to make sure I'm not stepping on toes. Is it okay if I help teachers take the curriculum they've been given, taking that program, and shorten up direct teaching lessons, give students more choice, give students more autonomy, help teachers think about more dynamic ways of getting kids engaged in math. She said, yes, but what teachers can't have choice about is the actual methodology of the math instruction. So if there is a certain way that we're saying that all students need to learn multiplication and that's in the math program, they can have choice about how to practice that but teachers can't choose to not teach that kind of multiplication. And I was like, right on. I totally respect that. That makes a lot of sense because that's, that's where we want consistency. Mm -hmm. That going into fifth grade, all the fifth grade teachers need to know that all the fourth graders learned how to do multiplication using this particular algorithm or using this particular thought process. That's non-negotiable. So that's one thing that administrators worry about is that if they give free reign and say to teachers, you can have all the autonomy you want within this program, that some teachers will just not teach some of the stuff that's in the program. And that's a very real fear because many, it, because it's, I remember when I was a new teacher and I had to start learning new algorithms for multiplication and division, and we're still calling it new math, which is ridiculous because I was doing this 30 years ago. That's when it was actually new, I think. Um, it was hard. And it was scary for me to figure out how to do math in a different way. It actually developed my own conceptual understanding of math better. Um, but, I, but I think that that's an important conversation to have also. How much autonomy do you have and what, what's, what's, what are the non-negotiables? What do we not have flexibility about? <laughs> that's good to know. Yeah. So we started about 10 minutes ago with um, recognizing why it feels icky and and then we've gone getting clarity on the degree of the mandate, going back and making sure that you are finding ways to put your students first. What are some other things now that our teachers can do to own, I guess is the word, um, own or leverage that packaged curriculum? So I think one thing that teachers can do in any given lesson or unit is look for opportunities for kids to have some choice. Very often, in a, I'm thinking about a math program, there are practice problems given after a lesson. One really simple choice to give to students is instead of telling, the, telling all the students that they all have to solve all the problems, 
give a short practice period and say, pick and choose the ones that feel like they're at the just right challenge level for you. If they look so easy that you can just put down the answer without thinking about it, eh, don't waste your time. If you're so lost that you don't even know where to start, probably not a good place to practice. Find the ones that are appropriately challenging. And if you don't see a lot of those, make up some of your own. Or as a teacher, you could make up another practice set, take the 10 or 15 minutes to make another practice set that has got low floor, high ceiling examples. You know, you think about your students who need the most support and your students who need the most challenge and create a practice set that includes problems within that range. And then say to your students, you could either practice the problems in the book or I have this extra set of practice problems you could use. That's a really simple shift that offers students some autonomy, can help them feel a sense of competence because they're being appropriately challenged. Um, the purpose can feel a little bit higher. And so that can give some more energy to the math work and doesn't, doesn't require changing an entire lesson. It's just about giving students a wider set of ways to practice. Um, another thing that I've seen some teachers doing is putting up vertical whiteboard spaces in their classrooms. And, um, you know, this could be chart paper or this could actually be glossy whiteboard spaces and having students in small teams take the practice problems that are given in the book and go up and work through the problems together on a vertical surface. They're getting out of their chairs, they're collaborating, they're talking a little bit more. You can then do a museum walk after everybody's done a couple of problems, walk around and check out the problems, see what other people are working on. Um, that doesn't require you to, re to change the whole lesson. It's just a different way of interacting with it. So I think that's something for teachers to think about is find small ways to get kids out of seats, give kids more choice um, while still using the, the program itself. Mm -hmm. and, and so let me give, I think, the, the ways that administrators can help teachers do all three of those, all four of those things. So the first, it really is the responsibility, I think, of school leaders to know the, the goals and the expectations behind the selection of the program. So that's that's on us. That's on school leaders to talk to whoever we need to talk to and just say, hey, just want clarity, right? We want to understand what's the expectation and what's the goal and why, why did we actually choose this program instead of another? And then the second point is to be really clear with teachers that, hey, here are the expectations, right? So teachers really shouldn't have to seek us out when they're handed this new curriculum. We should be having those conversations with them. And then I think the third thing that we can do during implementation, during training, whatever it is, one of the things that we can keep facilitating as school leaders is helping keep students in the center of the implementation. And so when we have those conversations, hey, how's it going? We know this, this program has maybe these three components. How, how are they impacting your kids, right? Is, is, are you having success? Who are the kids that are still struggling with this? And let's think about that. So we can help remind teachers in the, in the pressure and in the urgency, like, no, this, this is about kids. It isn't about the program. So I, I love this. I think this is, this is what I wanted this conversation to be. Can we, can we move to something else? And, and, and I, can I is, just jump in with one yeah. more quick suggestion? Please. It's, it's hot on my mind. And um, I think one of the things to also have our radar up for, both as teachers and as administrators, is to look at lessons and units in that program and curriculum through an eye of child development. What, what are elements here that 
that really do jive well with what kids at this age are capable of and interested in and are able to do. And what are the elements here that actually are out of line with development? Because I have seen many, many instances, again, especially at the elementary level, where those programs and curricula are asking children to do things that they can't do developmentally yet. For example, I was in a first grade classroom and a teacher was following the curriculum, the literacy curriculum. It required all students to have the textbook in front of them. They each had their own book. And the teacher had the same book up on the dry erase board projected up digitally. And the children were both supposed to read along in their books, but then every now and then look up at the board at where the teacher was pointing. Six-year-olds can't do that well because their eyes haven't developed the capacity to look up close and far away back and forth. That, that's They can either look far away or they can look up close, but going from up close to far away and far away to up close is, is physically really, really hard for six-year-olds. And 60-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not no. great teaching no matter what, but, but when you ask first grade teachers to do something with first graders that first graders aren't capable of doing, like we got to have our eyes up for that. There's a, there's a really simple fix to that, which is we either put the children on the floor and we read the story together up on the, up on the screen, or we just have them look in the books and we read it aloud and they follow along. Like that, but that's something that administrators can help teachers with is let's think about these lessons through the lens of developmental characteristics and hallmarks and which what elements work well and which ones do we need to adjust. Right. And just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. And just because it's in a pretty package that says research-based, it doesn't mean that the entire package is appropriate. And if teachers are looking for an amazing resource, uh, there is a book called Yardsticks by Chip Wood. He's a, a former colleague of mine. It's an amazing book. It's a little bit dated now, but it's still very, very appropriate and relevant. And it is a look at child development through the lens of school. And I think it goes from ages four right up through 14. And it gives you some really simple bulleted charts of what are kids doing physically and socially and emotionally and cognitively at these different ages? And that would be a really great resource to say, okay, let's become familiar with our age. Let's remember what these kids are all about developmentally. And now let's look at the program and see what works, what doesn't. So we will make sure that we include a link to Yardsticks, the book by Chipwood in the in the show notes. Great. Okay. <clears throat> I, yeah, now, I now was a, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was a guest on a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago and was asked what I would say to assistant principals about the evaluation process. And <laughs> I, I think we do evaluation so wrong and so backwards. And so the, the conversation I want to have is about how we leverage the evaluation process to actually be a motivational, to feed the motivation of teachers' natural desires to get better at their craft. So going right back to the beginning of, of the show, getting better at your craft is motivating, it's powerful. So how do we take the evaluation process and make it part of the growth process? And I'm, I'm working on a couple assumptions here. So the first is 95% of your teachers don't need to be evaluated. You're not 
trying to fire them. You're not going to get rid of them. They're competent. And the evaluation process doesn't need to be about making them afraid or coming up with a number. It is, it, it's actually counterproductive. 5% of the people, yeah, we, they need to be evaluated. But the other 95%, if, if you're going through that big formal evaluation process and it's, you know, pre, pre-conference, 40-minute observation, post-conference, you got to do it three times a year, like that is a missed opportunity. You have to invest that time. And so how do we make that summative thing something that is then formative and helping teachers grow? And Mike, the reason I thought this would be a great conversation to have with you is because of those six pieces of motivation, because your understanding of that. And so let's think about how we motivate teachers or how we feed their natural motivation, right? Their yes, natural motivation. Yes. How do we not kill their natural motivation to get better? Those 95% of teachers that do not need to be evaluated. And, and so my first place to start with that is that we don't need to choose what they focus on. They need to choose what they focus on. Even when a teacher is struggling, and I keep repeating this story because people need to keep hearing it. I show this seven-minute video clip of the traditional get-up-and-lecture high school social studies teacher. And the lesson, I mean, it's a train wreck. And the kids are bored to death, and they start misbehaving. Like, it's just a mess. But when I ask assistant principals, what is critical that that teacher focuses on first? Like, what's the most important thing to help that teacher? If I have 10 APs, I get three or four different answers, which tells me that we, and the research bears this out, we're not particularly good at deciding what the most important thing is. And then the other piece of that is any improvement that that teacher makes in any of those five different areas it's going to make a better lesson. It's going to help kids. It's going to help the teacher. So to a certain extent, is there technically something that might be the biggest bang for the buck? Maybe, but does it really matter? No. And so if it doesn't matter, then why not work with the teacher and see where they express the biggest pain point? What's their biggest frustration and let them name where they want to grow? Because now we are the supporter and the facilitator. And when they name where they want to grow, they own that and they should, right? And then we have to help them. But if we name it, we own it. So that's that's the premise. And I think then we can wrap, we can use the evaluation process to feed that. But let's just start with that. Um, tell me from a motivation standpoint, what works on that? And then are there things that we should tweak in that approach to actually increase the motivational power? Yeah, absolutely. And this is such an interesting and important conversation because as I said earlier, those six intrinsic motivators we want to foster in student learning, those are the exact same thing that adults need. Um, and if I remember correctly, when we had our last conversation, episode 93, I was just about to go see Jim Grant, the instructional coaching guru in action. And uh and I've been doing a lot of thinking about some of the things that he shared about. It was an amazing, amazing day. He was a really skilled facilitator of adult learning and had some great ideas. So I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to help teachers find good goals to work on. Um, and some teachers might already know what they need to work on. 
Um, some might need a little bit of support and guidance in getting there. And uh, a question that Jim Grant suggests using to help teachers, if they're really lost or if they're struggling to find something, is to ask them, what's something that your students are currently not doing that you'd like for them to be able to do better? To keep the focus on students, um, you know, I'd like for my students to be able to maintain attention through a lesson. I'd like for my students to more fully engage in an activity when they're in a small group. Um, once they've articulated what they'd like for their students to do, then you can help the teacher find a couple of possible ideas to try. Oh, have you considered this? What are some ideas you have? What might you do? So I think that's one thing to do is I, I completely agree with the idea that teachers need some autonomy when when crafting goals. And that if if you if you as administrator actually came up with the exact answer that that teacher would have given, and just gave it to them, they're not gonna have the energy for it than, than if they came up with it themselves. And I think you're completely right that oftentimes there are three or four or five or eight different possible entry points into improving practice that might be really effective. So let's let teachers pick one that's gonna work for them. Um, and better for them to pick something that we might not think is a huge priority, but that they have energy for, than to give them what we think is the biggest priority and have them not have energy for it. I'd rather have them make really good growth on something that they care about, even if I'm not sure it's the right way to go, um, than for me to be telling them what they're supposed to do. So I think yeah. that's one one big thing is, and different teachers will need different levels of guidance in getting to good and effective goals. But I, but I think that's a, that's important is, you might say to one teacher, what's something you'd like to work on? And they already know. They know it. They want to work on it. They're ready to go. Other teachers might say, well, I've got four or five things I'm thinking about. Other teachers might say, I have no idea. And then we might need to ask that question. What are some, what's something you'd like for your students to do? Or we might need to say, I have a few ideas. Right. Here are three right. or four. Do any of these sound like good possibilities? Yeah. And that might be another way to give them some autonomy, but with some structure. So I, I love this. And I'm thinking about how we build this into, again, the formal part of the evaluation, because ideally we're doing all this outside of the formal evaluation process and we're doing the formative assessment and coaching and all that. But the reality is in a lot of places, you just don't have the time. You make the time for that formal evaluation because it's a legal mandate and requirement, but then we're, we don't have all the formal. So how do, you know, how do we kind of get both those things. So I think most of these formal evaluations have a pre-conference and, and you may or may not have a specific set of questions, but I'm sure you can add. And so one of those questions should be something that surfaces what they'd, what they'd like to get better at. And again, as you just modeled, it may be, oh, this, and they may say, I don't know. And that's when you know you can ask something like, what's something your students aren't doing that you would like them to do better? So in that pre-conference, if we can actually start to identify something that a teacher wants to improve, then when we do the formal evaluation, we can be extra attentive. So we've got the seven areas, the six competencies, the 25, whatever, but we can give extra attention to that area that the teacher talked about. And now when we go into the post-conference, we actually have data. We have data 
that we can have that conversation about the teacher and say, here's what I observed. Here's what I saw. Here's what this, here's where, here's the data that you have based on this now and your goal, what, what makes sense for the next steps. And then they can, we can work with them to identify how they want to learn. Do I want to go observe a peer? Do I want to go to a training? Do I want to read a book? Do I want the instructional coach to come in and put them in charge of that? And, and now that we've got that, that big chunk, that heaviest chunk out of the way, now we step away from the formal evaluation, we've leveraged it, and now we can move into the formative process. And okay, you tell me what you've done, and then let's talk about how do we observe that? How can I capture data on that that's going to be meaningful, that's going to give you the feedback you need? Tell me or whoever else is going to go in and, and do that observation so we can capture that data so that you can see where where your next steps are and and what needs to happen. So I like I I think that's yeah. And to make sure there's a quick turnaround on that. Yes. In my own experience as a teacher, I wasn't observed often enough. I didn't get lots of good coaching from administrators. In fact, in my 15 years in the classroom, I was officially observed, like officially observed three times. And I was craving feedback. I wanted my principal to come in and see me teach and let me know what I was doing well and what I could do better. So teach and, and doing it once a year is not helpful. That's just going through the process. That's, that's pretending to do that whole system. Right. And we'll just pass through the teachers we know are fine. And, um, but I'd say in the process you're talking about, once the teacher has said, here's what I'm going to do to work on this. So for example, I do a lot of teacher coaching. I'm not in an evaluative role. I'm there as a teacher coach. I will often say to teachers, all right, here are a couple of ways that you could explore teacher language if that's something we're working on. You could take this online course. You could check out this book. I've got a collection of articles you could read. You could go observe in somebody else's classroom. Which of those would you like to do? And when I'm back in a month, where do you expect to be with that? So let's let's have a short amount of time between now and when we're going to meet again to talk about it. Because if we set a goal in September and don't touch base on it until January, that's too much. It's irrelevant. Too much space has passed. People forget what they were supposed to be working on. Um, so to keep the, the coaching cycle short and tight. And if you've yeah. got to do a 40-minute observation, I'm sorry, that's too long. But if you've got to do it, then do that because that's what you're supposed to do. But subsequent coaching supports, it might be 10 minutes. Yep. Yeah. Like if the teacher's goal is to keep their direct instruction short and tight, then you go in to watch their direct instruction the first 10 or 12 minutes of the class period. You don't have to stay for the next 45 minutes of the Absolutely. class. Yeah. So I want to put two, two caveats here. Um, so that first is there are structures that we need to build in to be able to then really take advantage of leveraging the formal evaluation process. So as you stated, it's not enough then to say, okay, so here's the goal and you can go do these things and then I don't follow up for a month and a half. But for me to have that follow-up, which is essential, there are structures that we as an instructional leadership team need to have in place. There are practices, there's collaboration with our instructional coaches and, and other people. So it's not as easy as just doing it this way, but, but this is a piece that we miss. So this is a piece we really need to think about and, and leverage. And then there are those other practices and that's another podcast. <laughs> that's a course, that's a book, that's all kinds of other stuff. The other caveat here, 
is to understand that there are a lot of teachers out there that have been traumatized by the evaluative process or who have been conditioned to understand that the evaluative process is kind of a, a joke in a way. It's not about them, right? Mm -hmm. It's just go in and check the box. So the other thing I liked about what you said about keeping things tight and keeping a quick cycle is if we can build a cycle of wins. And so maybe the teacher says, I want my students to be more responsive during direct instruction. Okay. So we support the teacher in that goal. All right. What's next? Now we move to the next one. Now we're building trust. And now they know we are their partner. This isn't a gotcha. This isn't me telling you right? I am your partner. And so then after a couple wins, if there's still something that we really think that they should attend to, now I can say, hey, Mike, we've gone through these three things. You've been, you've been, you know, really successful. I'd like to have a conversation with you about something that I'm seeing that you might want to consider for the next round. Can we have that conversation? Well, yeah, now you're on their side. I can't start with that, especially with, with a young teacher, I might be able to, but with a lot of teachers, they have been traumatized. So they're waiting for the gotcha. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's where we have to be patient and build trust and honor where people have come from, what their experiences are, and recognize that everybody's going to be different. And so I think if we approach this with a really with a servant's heart, then I need to adjust my expectations and my practices to meet you because it's about you. It's not about me. You know, something else to consider with that, especially if you're worried that people have been traumatized by this awful process in the past, is to really think carefully as a leader, as a, as a servant of teachers. What's the physical space that you're going to have this conversation in? And how, how can you leverage a physical space that will be less intimidating and more conducive to collaboration? Maybe don't have this in your office but maybe do a walk and talk around the school or maybe meet in the teacher's room, like the, the actual teacher's classroom, not the staff room um, that make sure that your chairs are similar, you know, and that you're not sitting in the big power chair at your desk with the teacher sitting down low, you know, like those awful interviews that we probably all remember, you know, the, the physical space that we have for these conversations plays a huge role in, how, how teachers are going to feel about them. So to be really aware of our tone of voice, the lighting, the, the seating, all of that um, can, can really help also. Yeah. Mm. Such, such good stuff. I always love our conversations. They're just so great. So now we're going to have you on the show again. But as we start to wrap this up, what part of your own leadership are you still trying to get better at? I think one of the things that I'm still really thinking a lot about is when I'm working in a school, I often find myself in a position where I'm both supporting teachers and school leaders at the same time. And, and there's sometimes tension there because the teachers need something and I need to help the the school leaders support teachers in a certain way, but then sometimes the school leaders need something and they need the teachers to help support the school leaders in certain things. And, um, and as a, as somebody who comes into a school from the outside, I'm still working really hard at figuring out the dynamics of how to do that. Well, mm -hmm. um, when do I push, when do I 
When do I step back? Um, when do I name something that I'm seeing? When do I hold on to that and keep thinking about it? Um, it's really, it's really dynamic and enjoyable at times, but it can also be really hard at times. And it's something that I continue to, to work at is just to be really reflective about how, how do I make sure that when I'm there, I'm really doing what's best for kids in that building and adults in that building. And especially when there are, <laughs> when there are tensions that feel like I can either serve one well or the other well, what do I do and how do I do that? It's mm -hmm. a, it's a challenging thing. That's something yeah. I'm working at. Mm, thank you for sharing that. We've covered a lot of ground and, and there's admittedly layers of complexity that we've looked at today. If we were to give one, say one thing that we want assistant principals to take away from today, that simple enough that they can go and they can begin acting on that, what would that one thing be? I'm, I'm thinking a lot about something you said just a little bit ago about how do we make sure not to kill teachers' motivation to get better? I really think that most teachers want to get better at their craft. And I think most of us see it as a craft. And, and it's something we care deeply about. And we wanna do well for our students. We wanna facilitate great teaching and learning. And, um, and, that, and it's hard. And if, if assistant principals can keep in mind that most teachers really do want to get better and they keep that sort of right in their heart as they're working with teachers and they come in using a tone of voice and body language that assumes best intentions, that assumes the teachers want to grow and learn, um, that's one of the ways that we can keep teachers open to that. And I, and I think that's, it's something you said earlier and I'm just, I'm th still thinking about it a lot. Thank you. I love it. Change begins within. So get our hearts right. Yeah. Okay. Where can people find out more about the fantastic work you're doing and find your books and all of that great stuff? Where can they go? Yeah, thank you. Um, probably the easiest, best place is my website, which is leadinggreatlearning.com. And people can find links to books that I've written, can find overviews of some of the professional development opportunities I offer to schools. I also write um, somewhat frequently, depending on the time of year, on a blog, and also invite teachers that I work with to submit guest articles through that blog also. So in the last few months, four different sets of teachers from a middle school in Connecticut have all been sharing some of what they've been working on through that blog. And there's some really interesting things that teachers could explore there. So my, my website is probably the, the best, easiest way to go as sort of a catch-all for connecting with the work I'm doing. Okay, great. And of course, we'll include that in the show notes and on our show page on the website at frederickbuskey.com. Uh, I also want to say to people... If, if you're interested in having Mike come work with you, you better call him really soon because I know, Mike, you're popular and, and, and get booked really fast. So if you've liked what you've heard on the show and you appreciate it, you reach out to Mike, have the conversation and, and see if you guys can work something out because he's doing great, great stuff. Mike, yeah, this has been great. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it, even if I'm busy, even if I'm booked, I've got colleagues doing amazing work in the field as well. And I'm always happy to pass along um, to work to colleagues. So if you've got a question, if you've got a challenge and I can't support you right now, I probably know somebody who can. So 
please reach out and I'd love to help help support the great work you're doing. Great. Right. And this has been so good having you on the show again. Thank you for taking time and being here. Yeah, thank you. This is enjoyable once again, and I can't wait to come back on another time. All right. Awesome. There was a lot in this discussion to think about, and we did get into some details. The reality is that promoting teacher agency isn't always simple, and it isn't always easy. But let's recap three things you can do to help teachers work within the confines of canned programs and feed their natural motivation to improve their craft. First, as Mike suggested in the conclusion, adopt an abundance mindset when it comes to teacher growth. Mike didn't say it quite that way, but supporting teachers begins with trusting teachers and assuming that they want to grow and get better. Secondly, understand that we all have different lived experiences, different traumas, challenges, and triumphs. The same playbook won't work with everyone, so we need to be patient, which brings us to point three. Third, put people before purpose. Putting your teachers first as people will naturally lead you to ask the right questions and to take on a servant's attitude. It will also model for your teachers how to put students before purpose or tests or curriculum or whatever the distraction may be. Over the next two months, most of our podcast episodes are going to be with guests who take a very human-centered approach to education. You will continually hear about relationships, trust, and serving others. As I say this, I'm wondering if we're already dialed in on those things. So maybe what I'm saying is, I hope you embrace the message. But here's why the timing matters. In four to eight weeks, you will have new teachers walking into your building who will be facing huge challenges they've never encountered before. You will have second year teachers who are wondering if this year will be any easier than the last. And maybe some third through fifth year teachers who are beginning to feel like maybe they know what they're doing. And you also have veteran teachers coming in with all of their own rich experiences. And over the summer, all these people are experiencing joys or traumas or both. Each will need something different from you, but you won't know what that is if you don't build the relationship. Learn about them and then serve them. Just imagine executing on that and having each teacher at the end of the year feel valued, respected, and cared for. How motivating would that be for them and for you? Thank you for including me on your leadership journey. I look forward to seeing you again on Friday when we recap this week's daily emails. I'm Frederick Buskey, and thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Assistant Principal Podcast. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Cheers. Mm -hmm.